So this is a this is a quasi true story. I hope I hope uh, you're all dry. That's probably the main reason why you all are here, uh, which I don't mind one bit. I I think this is one of the most comfortable rooms to be in at Grace Church campus. So thank you for coming to this conf- uh, Shepherd's Conference session on pass or fail. Um, I have no idea how long or short this session will be. I remember walking down from the pulpit yesterday and thinking, praise the Lord, I'm done. And then the thought hit me, said, oh, there is tomorrow, which is today. And I did have something prepared. I wasn't last minute, but um, we'll see what the Lord does through this. And uh, to that end, let's begin with the word of prayer, shall we? Our God and Father, may this time be one that not only talks about education and not only talks about the nature of truth, but may you use this to strengthen hearts, to hold up the Scriptures high, to exalt yourself, and may this entire moment be truly an act of worship to you, an adoration of all of your wisdom and all of all of your righteousness, of all of your insight in what you have done in the Word of God. And may that be what drives us to be more faithful ministers and recognizing the importance of things like parenting and the importance of every decision, even decisions that we think are small. May it help us to recover, once again, the power of the pulpit, and may it help many men as they go back to the ministries that they are in to be fortified unto the unrelenting, uncompromising, bold, confident preaching of your word Sunday after Sunday, knowing that your word never goes out in vain. And so bless this time. May it be truly worship and adoration unto you and for your glory. In your name we pray, amen. You might have looked at the title of this session and wondered, why do we even have something called Pass or Fail, the truth about truth and education? And then you probably saw who was speaking, Abner Chow, the president of the Master's University and Seminary. And you think, Chow? You're having this guy speak on this topic? Well, what's going to happen now? Is this just going to be an infomercial for the Master's University and Seminary? Is that what's going to happen for an hour? Who wants to come to that? Totally agree. Totally agree. (laughs) No, I don't want this to be an infomercial for the Master's University and Seminary. Absolutely not. And I hope that that does not happen. I do not want to sell you anything, not for $9.99 or anything of that nature, because that would be just a tremendous disservice and a gross abuse of pastoral ministry, and we all know that. My heart in this is to build you up, to encourage you to keep going on in ministry, to encourage you of the depth and necessity of the ministry you all do in your churches to encourage you in the way that we can encourage the people that are assigned to us by God in ministry. And the way that I want to just begin this time together is to remind ourselves that even in ministry, we can forget that we are at war. We can forget that we are at war. Paul, though, makes it clear 
Ephesians 6, that we are at war. There is this issue of putting on the armor of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, likewise, reminds us that we are at war and we need to put on the helmet of salvation. 2 Timothy 2 uses the analogy of the soldiers. 2 Corinthians 10 talks about taking captive every thought unto the obedience of the lordship of Christ. Jude makes it clear as we are to contend earnestly. We are in battle. Peter makes it clear that we are at war. We are warring against the lusts of the soul. Second Peter makes it clear that we are warring against false teachers. We know that the truth of Christ and the truth of the gospel is absolutely important and absolutely central, and that the church, in its redemptive historical role, in this era of history, in this moment, it is assigned by God to be the beacon of truth in this world. Not just a beacon of truth, the beacon of truth. This is our mission. This is our place. This is our function in the eternal plan of God. As Acts 1 reminds us, we are the witnesses of Christ. We are salt and light. We know that. And as Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 3, we are the pillar and grounds of the truth. We are where truth is epitomized. That's the pillar with clarity. And we are the grounds of truth. If we fail in the mission of truth, there is no truth for the generation. That is the necessity and the cruciality of the church. And so our struggle is to ensure that in every generation, every generation has the truth. That we fight within our churches and without or outside of our churches, that is, to do all that we can so that the truth of the gospel will remain for yet another generation. That is our role. That is our mark in history. It is exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that we hold forth the word of life. That is our mission. We're in a battle. It's a fight. It's a struggle. And the tricky part, though, of this full frontal war of doing everything to do to still yet stand, the tricky part of it all is that, in a sense, there is a silent war within this war. That's all we have to understand. There is a silent war within this war. war. <clears throat> the silent war often refers to, in military strategy, the covert operations, the spy craft, the infiltration, the preparation of laying groundwork and reconnaissance so that the major offensive can take place to wreck devastation. We are in a silent war. There is a silent war. While we are often used to the overt drama and physical violence and the threat of war, there is a silent war. And ironically, in our situation, that silent war no longer is even that covert. It's pretty obvious what you can see in the world today that What has been behind the scenes, what has been clandestine, is now really coming out in such dramatic ways. People all over the nation, not even just believers, people all over the nation are shocked. And that was kind of one of the hidden beauties of COVID. When all schools had to live stream their classes, everyone saw what was going on behind the scenes. It was made evident They couldn't hide it anymore. They had to make it real. But what has been hidden is revealed, but what was hidden was always hidden. It was always there. 
It was always the case, and it's sometimes hard for us to see. We only see, even then, the most disgraceful, the most grotesque, the most disgusting and despicable acts of this silent war, this war on truth. But there's been a silent war this whole time. It's harder to see because, in a word, it looks normal. It's normal. It's normal to send your children to school. It's normal to have them have an education. It's normal to have them instructed in a certain way, to have them have a certain framework of mind. There's a beginning, middle, and end to all of this. It's, well, these are the presuppositions, and man can make observations, and people can do these things, and you can understand science, and there's this kind of objectivity. And we think, yeah, I've heard that before. That seems normal. And then there's a middle part of it, which is this is how you do what you do, and this is how you think what you think, and this is how you do certain kinds of businesses and vocations and operations. And you think, yeah, I've heard that before. That that sounds okay. That's pretty normal. And then how about the end result? This is why you do what you do. You got to get a job. You got to go out there and work. You got to make some money. You got to have the American dream, whatever it may be. And we say, yeah, I I get it. I mean, that's that's, that's normal. I've heard that before. And because everything is normal, we assume everything is right. Let me pause here for a second, brothers, and just talk about, on a side note, but a related note, the danger of normal. The danger of normal. I've noticed, and I've just been able, one of the blessings of being at the Master's University and Seminary is just talking with so many older faculty. Faculty who were around before divorce was legal faculty who were around before a lot of things became legal, and talking with them from a historical standpoint of how the church changed when society said it's okay, when the government said it's okay. There is an innate danger, brothers, that once the world, and particularly once the government says it's okay, the church starts to lessen the gravity of sin. We need to be careful of the normal because we often assume the normal is right. We often think the normal, to put it frankly, is normal. And therefore, it must be okay. And that is really the downgrade. That is really the downward spiral And it affects issues from, in this modern day, marriage and its nature, the roles of women and all of that, as well as even the issue of sex and gender. But it affects something even more foundational, which is education. We think, well, the way our kids are educated, it's normal. So it must be fine. There must be no problem to it. I had the same thing. It's normal. But what we don't realize is that the normal has anesthetized us to what is actually true. True. We're never normal if we're the remnant. We're always the outlier. If we're nearly the extinct species, then we're definitely not normal. We're different than everybody else. We're the exception to the rule in that regard. And to really see this, I think, and especially as we want to apply it to ministry, let's not talk about education for a long, long, long second. Let's actually take a step back. And we need to understand how all of this normalcy 
actually emaciated the truth. It emaciated the truth, which affects all of us because all of us are in the ministry of truth. And what ends up happening is that what you have is that you diminish the Bible's reach. That's what education has done in our minds and in our people's minds. It's diminished the Bible's reach. People often say, well, I don't know if the Bible is really pertinent to this subject. I mean, the Bible doesn't talk about a lot of things. And so the Bible doesn't really encompass this area of discussion. We've always heard that kind of language. The Bible lacks the breadth of talking about everything. After all, people will say, well, the Bible doesn't tell you how to do an oil change. The Bible doesn't tell you how to do this, that, or the other. The Bible doesn't comment on these subjects. And so we we start to restrict the Bible. We start to restrict its breadth. And we start to restrict not only its breadth, we start to restrict its depth. It's absolutely fascinating. People start to say, well, I don't know if the Bible really has bearing on this topic. It, It doesn't really intersect what's going on here. It doesn't really integrate well into whatever it is. And so we just start to remove the Bible as the foundation for so many things. And we also restrict the height of the Scripture, the height of the Scripture. We start to say, well, there are lots of reasons why you can do what you do. And we often fall into this pragmatic, well, you got to do this because it works, because it's going to help you, because it's going to be good for you. And so all of a sudden, we've restricted the breadth of the Bible. We've restricted the depth of the Bible. We've restricted the height of the Bible. And that's why people say, I don't know if the Bible's really relevant. Or to put it more positively, they say, you got to make the Bible relevant to me. Have you ever heard that before? That is just assuming the Bible is irrelevant. That is a result of years of indoctrination that has siloed the Bible, that has handcuffed the Bible, that makes the Bible one subject of many that makes the Bible a compartment of reality, that makes the Bible just part of the whole and not the whole itself, that makes the Bible a piece of the puzzle rather than the whole picture, that makes the Bible just one brick of the building instead of the entire framework. That's what has happened. The entire reason people are wondering, I don't see how the Bible's relevant, is because We have been training people year after year after year and allowing people to buy into the notion that man, he thinks of so many cool things, and then you have the Bible. That's not how this works at all. And so the degradation of education in the name of being normal has actually led to the degradation of the Bible. That's what we have to understand. And once you handcuff the Bible, then there's implications on a lot of things. Not just education. It's about preaching. It's about church. It's about Christian life. And so my goal in this session is actually not to talk as much about education. I don't want to give you an infomercial at all. What I want to encourage you is, do we really understand the greatness of truth? Do we really understand the profundity, and the sufficiency of the Scripture? Do we really understand how far the Word of God goes and all of it goes? And once you understand that, and fundamentally, that's the most encouraging thing because that means every Sunday you get up, you can declare, this is my turf. 
Whatever you are going through in your life, that is my turf. Whatever you are thinking about in life, that is my turf. Why? Because it is not just mine because I'm just an egotistical self-maniac. It is because this is the word of God. And the word of God's turf is everything. That is what we must understand. And that is what we must reclaim. And so my effort primarily today, and we'll see how much time we have in all of this, but my effort primarily today is to reclaim the truth of Scripture. We believe the Bible's true. We just keep saying that, but we don't know what we mean by that. And we need to reclaim it firmly for our people and help them to understand that. And once you do, then everything starts to fall into place about education. It really does. And so that is kind of my strategy. I have three points in light of this. Let's first reclaim the truth. That's the big deal. Then we can talk about second point, training. That's education. And then we can talk about the third point, which is the ministry as pastors. How do we help facilitate all of this? So with this in mind, let's talk about the truth. Let's talk about the truth. Like I said, our culture has normalized the emaciation of the truths of Scripture. It is one subject of many. It is one compartment of many. Often the phrase is that there is a division between the sacred and the secular. The sacred things, they belong to the Word of God. We often call it life and godliness. And we just mean the things you do in your life that are really godly kind of things. When you read your Bible, of course the Bible's relevant. When you go to church, of course the Bible's relevant. When you have to make a decision about how you live your life, of course the Bible's relevant. And anything else? No, just those things. Oh, when you pray or when you sing Christian songs, that's the only time that it's relevant. And then everything else, you do whatever you want because the Bible's not relevant. That's what has happened. That has been what has taken place relative to the Bible. We have siloed the Scripture in a very, very narrow silo. But brothers, the Word of God is never bound. The Word of God is never bound, and it cannot be bound, and it reaches far beyond that. And so I just want to give you, under this first point, four kind of ideas of how the Bible goes far bigger then that's silo. So let's walk through these four things now under the first overarching point of truth. The Bible is greater in its breadth than we give it credit for. The Bible is greater in its breadth than what we give it credit for. Here's a simple way to think about it. When we think about the idea of worldview, and I know people don't always like the term worldview, and I concede that the philosophical underpinnings of worldview and such, they do have faultiness. I completely agree. But whether you want to use the term or you would prefer to use a different term, what we're talking about is when we talk about the perspective of the world, looking at things on this earth, everything as Ecclesiastes says, which is under the sun, there are four major categories that people recognize that you have to have when you think about anything in this world. Four major categories. And believe it or not, they're all alliterated. It's kind of nice. The first one is epistemology. Epistemology. How do you know what you know? That's a big deal. People need to know why they believe what they believe. People need to know whatever belief you have, why it is substantiated and how did you derive it. And so there's epistemology. The second category is etiology. Etiology. You say, what does that mean? Etiology is the backstory. Backstory. The history of things. And most of us groan, oh, history, I don't like history. No, well, I agree with you. Uh, but, but, 
No, I appreciate it. But even in recent films and literature, we recognize backstory, origin story. It's neat. It matters. It explains a lot. It explains why things are the way they are. We know that. So etiology matters. There's a reason why people, when they see a tragedy, something like a school shooting, which is so, so difficult and so, so dark, there's a reason why one set of people says, oh yeah, that's bad. Okay, that's a good start. And it's caused by mental illness and oppression when they were growing up, and a lack of opportunity. And so what we really need is gun control and more counselors and more invasion by the state and more drugs to be introduced and just free things for everybody, and that'll make it all better. And then somebody else who looks at it and goes, that's a tragedy. Yes, it is. It's because of sin. And the only solution for that individual and for any individual is the gospel. Why does one person say gun control and the other person says gospel? It's because of etiology. It's because of how we have been trained, how we understand schemes of causation. Where did you get that from? All the stories of the Bible, all the history, all the backstories, why things are the way they are. That's what's going on. So you have epistemology, you have etiology, and then you say, well, what's the other one? Well, if you talk about how things came to be, that's the past. You can also talk about where things are headed. That's the future. So you don't just have epistemology and etiology. You have what? Eschatology. You have eschatology. People want to know where things are going. You say, really? Yeah. Watch the movies. They're all predicting the future, right? With the stock market, they all want to know the trends and where things are going. Everyone has an eschatology. Just not the right one, but but it is one. It's part of their view. It shapes how they live. It gives them purpose. And once you know how you know what you know, epistemology, where things have come from, etiology, where things are going, eschatology, that leads you to know what you're doing here and now, and that's what we call ethics. Ethics. So we have epistemology, etiology, eschatology, and ethics. And here's what's amazing. That provides what we call a worldview, a perspective on life. Does not the Bible have all of those things? Does not the Bible have an epistemology? Yes, bibliology is that inherently. Why the Bible is inspired, why it is revelation, all of that is epistemology, Thus saith Yahweh is epistemology. It is an epistemology that says, you don't know. God does. The book of Job illustrates that so well. The book of Job is a reminder to us in part, as I would argue, the first book of Scripture, that man cannot know the ways of God on his own. Man's wisdom, though brilliant and intellectual and sophisticated in its own ways, is absolutely limited. Why? Because in the end, how many of Job's friends told Job, you know, Job, I think the reason you're suffering is because God had a conversation with Satan in heaven, and God had this amazing plan to write the book of Job, and he wanted to use this as an example to demonstrate his righteousness. So hang in there, buddy. God is really using you. How many of the friends said that? Zero. All F minus. Failure. Why couldn't they say it? Simple. It wasn't because they didn't have enough time. 
look, Job, I used to think it was five chapters. You know, Job suffers for two chapters. He has bad friends for three chapters, and then God comes and talks with him for two more chapters. Five chapters should be the length of James. But it's not. It's the length of Job. Why? Because they talk for a long time. And there's a reason for that. Because man can never figure out the ways of God on their own. You can be as smart as Eliphaz, who was a historian. He's the walking history channel. Or Bildad, who's a science guy. Or Zophar, who's a philosopher. You can have several rounds of debate that actually go through different metaphysics from pre-modern to modern to post-modern. You can do all of that and still not have the right answer at all. In fact, you have concluded the opposite of the right answer. What does that show you? You don't know on your own. That's epistemology. Who has to tell you? God. That's why Job says, Job 28, 28, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. We might have heard that in Proverbs, but actually at first was heard in Job. And Job's point is, I get it now. We can't figure this out. The only one who knows the answer is who? God. So you fear him. Why? Because for the first time when you're quiet and you listen to the guy who actually knows what he's talking about, you become wise because you actually know the truth at that point. You, you listen to the one who's truly the expert on the subject. Man doesn't just need reason. He needs revelation. That's epistemology. That's epistemology. And wisdom literature brings that out. Thus saith Yahweh brings that out. It's a reminder. Your feelings, your ideas, your thinking, what makes sense to you, that doesn't define anything except what you're feeling, what makes sense to you, and what you're reasoning. That's it. But it's not real. It's not real. What God says is real. You don't even know what real is until God says it. That's what we understand. That's epistemology. The Bible has a lot of epistemology. In fact, the whole point of the Bible, in a sense, is epistemology in to a degree. And the Bible's got etiology. Those are all the stories, all the genealogies, all the backstories, all the origin stories. In fact, the ultimate origin story of creation, that's in the Bible. It's got that. It's got eschatology. So much eschatology, we all debate about it. That's how much eschatology it's got. We got plenty. And it's got ethics. People don't like the Bible's ethics, but it's got ethics. It's got everything. It's got everything here. Everything that shapes people's minds about how you know what you know, how things came to be, where things are going to have perspective, and how you live right now. It has the whole, whole picture of reality. And there are really two major lessons to learn from this, that the Bible has such breadth. First of all, you need to know this. Every part of your Bible is profitable. Every part. You might say, I, I don't know if I like to preach Old Testament narrative or even gospel stories or acts. I don't know what you do with these stories. You need the stories. You need to know how things came to be. You need to know why things are the way they are. That matters. That's part of a holistic worldview. You might say, I don't know about this eschatology stuff. It's so controversial. Look, everyone needs eschatology. If you need hope, if you need perspective, and if you need purpose, which you do, and you are commanded to do, then you need eschatology. It's not just preach epistles. You can preach anything in the Bible, and it is profitable because all of it is uniquely designed to give a total, comprehensive, and extensive picture of reality. 
That is what it's designed to do. And here's the second encouraging thing. It's not just preach the whole Bible, but know what happens when you preach. Sometimes, and this happens in our devotional life, this happens in the life of the pulpit in the church, sometimes we just don't have this emotional aha moment. You know, you just start reading your Bible and you say, what's this about? And you repeat it and you understand it and you go on your merry way and you think about it. And there's no epitome that takes place, or epiphany, rather. And people get really discouraged because they just don't have these epiphanic moments. Here's what you have to remind yourself as you preach, because sometimes, I get it, you want to, when you get out of the pulpit, you want people to applaud. You want people to come up to you and say, Pastor, that changed my life. It just revolutionized everything. I'm going to go be a missionary, and they're going to write history, and you're going to be in it. You know, like, that's what you want. But that doesn't often happen, and we can grow so discouraged. But here's what you have to remember. Every time we preach, every time our congregation member struggles enough to read their Bible, read it carefully, and learn it, even if there's no emotional moment, even though it wasn't earth-shattering and the world has changed and it's going to be marked in the history books of man, God has used that to sanctify the mind of his people. And each time, there is sanctification and molding happening. Each time, the mind is being renewed. Like I said, there is a reason why one person says you need gun control and the other person says you need the gospel. It's because there's been a consistent stream of truth that has been dripping and repeating and formulating and fabricating and establishing habits of how to think through things in one's mind and in one's heart. And at that moment, truth is being ingrained. It may not be an emotional moment. That's okay. There's profit happening because people are being trained in godliness. And that's much more important than just one flash in the pan. That's much more important than just one flash in the pan. Learn that and understand this. Isn't it so profound? Maybe before this session you just wondered, yeah, I know there's a lot of different things in my Bible. That's great. But that man, over the course of hundreds of years, formulated, this is what makes up a worldview. These are the philosophical categories that comprise a comprehensive knowledge structure of the world. And then God says, yep, that's this book, already done, approximately, I don't know, you know, worldview structures came in the 1800s, approximately 1,800 years in advance, done. That's the brilliance of God, yes? Man couldn't even figure out why you had a Bible. And then when they figured out all the human structures, God said, beat you to the punch by a long ways. Already there. Thanks for catching up. The Bible is broader than anything we think about. Sometimes we just want to say, well, it just talks about this one subject. No, it talks about the entire totality of reality. What is the Bible's turf? It is everything. Why? because it encompasses all reality. That's what it does. It isn't just the minuscule details. It's the framework by which all details hang upon. That's what we have to understand. And that leads us from breadth to depth. The Bible's not just broader than we think about the entire fabric of reality. It's deeper than we think about. 
It's deeper than we think about. Sometimes we don't realize how foundational, how deep the Bible goes into things. And there are just two ways to look at this, which are very, very important. The first way is that it undergirds all knowledge. It undergirds all knowledge. Let me just give you uh, three quick examples. Very, very quick. One is communication. I don't think we've ever even thought about this, you know, how people talk to each other. And as a college professor, sometimes I have to remind students of the profundity of communication, that you can write something on a board. You can write something on your iPad. And it's really, if you look at it, it's just scribbles. If I wrote a different language, you would know that it's scribbles. Most of you have studied a different language, like Hebrew. And I had a student one time who told me as I was teaching him Hebrew, Abner, it looks like worms smashed on a page. Like, thank you. That was uh, Moses' language. (laughs) How do you make sense of this? How can one person talk to another person and it makes sense? It's like the caveman who says, ugh, and then the other caveman says, ugh, and then the first one says, ugh, and then the second one says, ugh, and the first one says, ugh, ugh, and the second one says, don't change the subject. How, How do you know? How do you know these things? It's amazing. And if you actually study the philosophy of language and you talk about the evolutionary philosophy of language, you will run into a massive problem. Because how do you get communication to work? How do you know what I'm saying makes sense to you and what you say back to me makes sense to me? And the squiggles on the page, which look like nothing of the real objects that we have and the sounds we have like apple, does apple sound like an apple? No. I mean, what what do you even mean by that? It's profound how this connection takes place. Two becoming one. How does that work? The Bible has a solution. In fact, it's founded in the very way that man and woman and humanity thereby extension relate. God said, let us make man in our what? Image. And notice, let us make man in our image. That's relational. We know that there are multiple persons in the Trinity, but what's the definition of the Trinity? Multiple persons, three persons, but they are what? One. Absolutely one. Not just socially united, not just agreement. We don't believe in tritheism. We believe in the triune God. He is one. That means how many language, I mean, how many thoughts does he think? One. So when they are together, so to speak, when they are them, they are still yet what? One. That's the very foundation for how you have language. I had a friend and he said, oh, yeah, you, you Christians, you kind of cheat on this, you know, this philosophy of language issue and the epistemology and the metaphysics of it because you have the Trinity. I'm like, yeah, we do. Like, Too bad for you. You can't figure it out. We're done. You, know? you should believe it. You know? And he's like, no, 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 no. But you, we don't even understand. How, how, do you have, how do you talk to just do that simple act? to talk, you need a Bible. You actually need a Bible to be able to undergird it. We don't realize how deep the Bible goes. Same thing with love. Everyone has the idea of love. Everyone loves the idea of love. Love is not only in every Hallmark card and every holiday and jewelry. It's even the size of ice cream at Cold Stone. That's how far love has gone. 
Everyone loves the idea of love. How do you ground love? Well, if you're an evolutionist, you're just saying, well, love is this hormonal, chemical uh, stimulus that causes procreation for the survival of the species. Put that on a Hallmark card. If you're a pantheist, well, love just exists because all the gods are together. Really? Have you read any polytheistic kind of documents? They never get along. There's no such thing as love as that. If you're monotheist, if you're pure monotheist, how do you get love? If you're Unitarian, in other words, who does God love? No one. So you can't have love that way. Any worldview, any religion cannot account for one of the most common expressions, something we talk about all the time. How do we have love? God is what? Love. Why? Because he is triune. What is love? Multiple becoming one. The love of a marriage is two who are what? One. Where do we see that fundamentally and perfectly? Triune God. That's why God is not just loving. He what? He is love because he is. It's pure act. And so the word of God undergirds everything, things that we take for granted, things like talking, things like love, things like science, whether that be the observation and the constancy of that. You need need scripture to undergird that. But let me just give you even a personal example from my own life that recently arose, and it just reminded me of the profundity of how the Bible undergirds everything. Recently, uh, my mother went to be with the Lord this past December she passed away of a brain aneurysm. She, she said goodnight to my father and myself, uh, me over text message, and then she said, I'm tired, and the brain aneurysm hit, and she went to be with Christ. Well, we were trying to figure out everything that happened, and due to the workings of medical science, her body could be preserved And so the question is, what is happening? And the whole issue of brain death and all of these questions start to arise. And and the doctor came up to me and said, the neurologist said, hey, here's what's going on. The brain as an organ is sending out signals, sending out signals. But his phrase was, the lights are on, but nobody's home. The lights are on, but nobody's home. So I needed to do some research. And so, you know, being a nerdy guy, I'm starting to research, read the journal articles on medicine and neurology and things like this. And it's absolutely fascinating. Let me give you the summary. In the 80s and 90s and even 2000s, there was an ongoing discussion and the American Ethics Board of Medicine ruled that someone could be declared brain dead or thereabouts in related categories if, and this is the quote, they had no will to live. They had no will to live. Now, here's the problem. They were trying to quantify something to prevent someone who had no consciousness whatsoever and to define consciousness to be able to pass away physically without doctors being accused of murder. That was the ethical quandary that they were in But the whole scientific community protested the definition. Why? Because they're all naturalists, or at least the great vast majority of them, let's just say. They're all materialists. They just believe your stuff. So what is this will to live? Where's the organ called will to live? Where is the electrical neurological impulse that's called will to live? And the ethics board said there's not. It's immaterial. And they said, hello, everything in our training says we are materialists. Why are you talking about that which is 
immaterial. That doesn't make any sense. And the ethics board basically said, do you want to be accused of murder? No. Okay, we win. (laughs) And then they said, fine, you win under protest. And they said, that's fine. We can remove it and you won't be protesting because you'll all be in prison. That was a really exciting read. What they could never handle is what we know so clearly, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We know that. What we know so clearly, that a body is just part of who you are in a sense. You don't just have body, you have a soul. You don't just have a body, you have a spirit. We have the outer man and we have the inner man. But when you only have half the equation, you have impossible situations like this. We don't even realize how deep the Bible goes to define things. You think, well, I I do medicine and I don't really need the Bible. What are you talking about? You need the anthropology of Scripture. And for those of you who have been through seminary, you're thinking, yeah, I remember. That was like the dichotomy, trichotomy, modified die. Oh, man, those bring up. Hey, this is why you need it. This is why you need it. Everything you need is heard in a good seminary, that is is really, really necessary. It's necessary for your entire life in these situations. Brothers, the Bible goes much deeper than we give it credit for. It's not just, oh yeah, it talks about a couple things. It undergirds everything. Communication, love, medicine, you name it, the Bible's there. The Bible's there. And accordingly then, we need to make sure that we are careful when we start taking in ideas from the world around us, because every idea has presuppositions. Every idea has assumptions. Every idea is buy an idea and get a worldview free. We don't even realize this sometimes. So then you have things like social justice, or things like social media, or things like social distancing even, or anything with the word social on it. It's just probably bad news. That's what's probably going on. And you have social justice, and we don't realize social justice is assuming a certain kind of problem to find a certain kind of way that has certain kinds of presuppositions. Did we really catch that? And social justice assumes that the problems, as defined of inequities and whatever that really, really means, and why it's wrong, even though it's actually not wrong, and, and all these different things have to have a certain political kind of solution, not the gospel. Well, all of a sudden now, who is supposed to do that? And when is that supposed to happen? All of those things we are imbibing, we don't even realize it, and now you have replaced Biblical harmardiology, biblical law, biblical definitions, biblical ecclesiology, biblical eschatology with an entire new system. You have a new religion. And you just, it's just because you accepted one idea. But the idea dragged in so many presuppositions. Same thing with social media. Social media presumed things like media. What does it mean to communicate? And people said you can communicate properly with 140 characters. Really? Really? Yeah, you could communicate some things through 140 characters, like hate mail. That's about it. You can't have proper discourse. Notice Paul doesn't use 140 characters. Jesus doesn't use 140 characters. Only Twitter uses 140 characters, or they used to. It it defined media, and it also defined social. It defined what it meant to have friends. It changed the entire definition. Friendship now is based if you click a button Think about that. 
You ever read that in Proverbs? Look at your friends. Click a button. Be well and filled. What? And what does it mean that you have fellowship? It means you like their post. You don't even know who they are. They could be a robot. And probably half your friends are robots. And I didn't even know robots could have friends. And we chuckle at this. And then then they shut down churches and people said, well, we could still have fellowship. We could still be together. What are you talking about? The whole idea of being together means being together. But we already changed all that because we bought into social media. You buy an idea, you get a worldview free. That's what you have to remember. The Bible goes much deeper. And therefore, our discernment has to go much deeper. It has to go to the same depth the Bible goes. It has to go to the same depth the Bible goes. We need to really guard ourselves because the Bible is broader than what we anticipate. The Bible is deeper than what we anticipate. And the Bible, therefore, is higher than what we anticipate. You know, the world says, why do you need to be educated to get a job? Why do you need to get a job to get money? Why do you need to get money to have a happy life? Why do you need to have a happy life? Because you die. It's the quandary of Ecclesiastes. Well, if you're dead, what does it matter? Well, then you can have an inheritance. And Ecclesiastes says, yeah, and then you give it to your children who squander it. How is that helpful? And then they say, well, don't give an inheritance to them. Well, then what happens if they need it? What are you going to do then? Well, uh, you don't know what to do. You know what to do. You can't win. Ecclesiastes deconstructs in all the right ways, debunks the entire world's thinking on life. Everything they thought dear. Oh, just get wisdom. Well, wisdom doesn't work. Oh, just become self-righteous. No, that doesn't work. Oh, just give an inheritance. No, that doesn't work. Don't give an inheritance. No, that doesn't work. Oh, oh, I know. Get, 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 get friends. Well, that doesn't work. Friends aren't going to help you. Don't get friends. Well, then you're going to be by yourself and, and two are better than one. But you can't win. And Ecclesiastes says, yeah, you can't. You can't win when life is under the sun. That's why you wait for the sun to disappear and the glory of God to fill the earth. And then you know this is the entire matter of thing. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's what matters most. Because that, that's what's real. Brothers, the Bible goes higher than the world's educational system. What the world teaches about truth. And for that very reason, it's not just that it goes broader. It's not just that it goes deeper. It's not just that it goes higher. It goes further. It goes further. C.T. Studd, I think you remember his famous quote, one life to live, all will pass. Only, done what is, only what is done for Christ will last. We know that. The Bible goes further. People think, look at man's reasoning. Look at man's technology. Look at man's inventions. You do realize that there's a reason why there's an iPhone 14. It's because there were 13 before it. It's exactly what Ecclesiastes says. Nothing's new under the sun. Man can't do anything that lasts. Can't. Just comes and goes. It's futile. It's vanity. You want to do something that lasts? Live your Bible. You want to do something that will make a mark on this world? Live your Bible. You want to do something that lasts forever? Live your Bible. 
Biblical truth goes broader, deeper, higher, and further. That's what it does. People often say, oh, well, we got to compartmentalize the Bible. What are you talking about? The Bible is broader than that. You People think, oh, well, the Bible doesn't really have bearing on the subject. What are you talking about? The Bible undergirds every single thing. It goes deeper than that. People say, oh, well, I don't know if it's really necessary to talk about the Bible's input here. Why? Because you have to have everything in the Bible to actually have biblical purpose, a purpose that makes sense. And people say, oh, I don't think it's relevant. What do you mean it's not relevant? This is about what is eternal. What else is there that is relevant? The Bible is not a silo. The Bible is the entire fabric of reality. What is the turf of Scripture? Everything. Everything is the turf of Scripture. What we need is the Bible, and we don't just need the Bible. We need all the Bible. And what is the Bible good for? The Bible is good for all of reality. That's what we have. You need all the Bible for all of existence. That's the sum of the matter. And that's why we preach the word and we preach the whole word and nothing but the word because there is nothing more relevant to people than this book, period. That's the truth of the matter. That's what we understand. That's the truth. And so once you understand that, that the Bible is that kind of truth, it's not just part of the whole It's the whole. It's the pages that reality is written on. Then everything starts to make sense. And it better because we only have about 10 minutes left. So let's go to the next point, which is training. We've talked about the truth. And the truth is this, that the Bible defines everything. It undergirds everything. Its turf is everything. And brothers, I just want to stress to you again, This is why preaching the word matters and all the word matters because you have to reclaim everything is under your turf, not yours personally, but the turf of the word of God. Everything is under the jurisdiction of scripture because the scripture is the all-encompassing reality of everything. And as a result, then, all of a sudden, education starts to make more sense or make a lot less sense, depending on how you want to look at it. And when, when you start to look at education and what it does, does education not teach you how to know things? Yes. Does education not teach you, does it not also teach you how things came to be in history? Yes. Does it teach you to look forward, you know, follow your dreams and look toward the future? Yes. Does it also not tell you how to live right now? Yes. That means education teaches you epistemology, ethics, etiology, eschatology. It teaches you an entire worldview. In other words, it teaches you a religion. What you have to understand then is all education is religious. What we have adopted because it's normal is, oh, you have have private education. That can be religious And then you have public education, which is what we call what? Not religious. In fact, that's even the modern classification. You have religious education and you have not religious education. Well, what you really have is religious education and religious education. That's all you have. Every education is religious. That's what we must fundamentally understand because every education teaches you a worldview and every worldview is a religion. 
And let me just kind of prove this very quickly from several perspectives. You could talk about a historical perspective. Why did people in Christianity early on, and why did people all the way back in the days of Israel engage in education? And they really did. Even in Israel, one of the oldest artifacts we have is called the Gezer calendar. It's a calendar found at the place called Gezer. I know, really, really profound nomenclature here. And you say, why? Because the Gezer calendar is actually like a book for kids, teaching them how to read and teaching them at the same time of how to read as how to do farming. You say, why did they do that? Because Israel was people of the book. They had a book they needed to read. The book was called the Torah. The book was called the law. So everyone in Israel needed to learn how to read. Israel was one of the most literate societies in the ancient world. Why? Because they were people of the book. And we are people of the book. And so even in early Christianity, every major institution of education in the West started from what? Christianity as a seminary to train pastors. We know that Oxford, Cambridge, Princeton, you name it. It is it. Why? Because we believe we're people of the book. We believe in the truth. We understood everything that I just said about the nature of truth. That drove education because we understood education was about the truth. And truth is a worldview, and therefore, truth is religious inherently. People knew that. People knew that. And then, after that, from a historical perspective, then they wanted secular education. They wanted to get rid of religion from education. But they weren't really getting rid of religion. That's not all that they did. They were just putting in a new religion. That's what they were doing. That was the agenda the whole time. And you can actually read it in the documents of some of the early individuals who pioneered the educational movement. They said, look, if we are to control the culture of society and drive it down a certain path, then we need to have progressive education in all the classrooms. The liberal agenda, to their quote-unquote credit, I suppose you could say, they wanted to control two things. They wrote it down. They had, they had it laid out. They wanted to control journalism, and they wanted to control education because they believed that those two things could influence and sway society. Did they do a good job on doing it? Yeah, they did a great job at being bad being wicked in those things. Yeah, but they were right. They were right because they understood what education really was. Education, there's no such thing as neutral education. Education is never neutral. All education is religious. And just do a theological analysis now on what is going on in education. You have a new cosmology. It's called evolution. You have a new anthropology. It's called LGBTQIA. You have a new angelology. You say, Abner, I don't think anyone in the schools believes in angels. That's my point. They don't believe in the supernatural. That's their new angelology. There's a new harmardiology. It's called psychology, where there is no such thing as sin. Everything's a matter of physical illness, and it can be solved with drugs, and it's never your fault. They have a new eschatology. That's the progressive agenda. They have a new God, and they have a new Bible, and that's called man and his reason. And when you have now substituted all 10 categories of systematics, what do you have? You have a new religion, which ironically is not new. It is as old as Satan himself who questioned anything that God said from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Religion is in every classroom 
all the time. There is no such thing as objective, neutral education. All education is religious. And here are the ramifications of that, and I'll just give you three. One is this. We need to realize then, when we send our children to school, we are sending them to a religion. And we are giving that religion a massive opportunity with our children. Few religions get eight hours a day with your child. But that's what's happening. That's what's happening. That's what you have to understand. Second, and we see the results of this. We see the results of this. If you think, yeah, what's wrong with the church today? What are we struggling against? CRT, LGBTQ, social justice, postmodernism, transgenderism, you list it. Do you want to know where people all learn those things? They learn them where? In the universities. They learn the underpinnings where? In the colleges. So that when they came to the church's door, everyone was already used to it. So they just welcomed it in. That's what happened. The university system, the college system, educational systems have been the culprit for much of the drift of the church, but it shouldn't surprise us because education, no matter how you slice and dice it, is a religion. It's religious by nature. And therefore, as a result of all this, here's the third ramification of it all. That means education is a pastoral issue. It's a pastoral issue. When this is affecting our churches in such a way, when it is affecting our people in such a way, when it is a matter about idolatry and syncretism and compromise, that's a pastoral issue inherently. This isn't just something you say, hey, you decide on your own. There's really nothing I can do. It, the Bible's kind of silent on the issue. It really isn't, a, isn't of any substance or pastoral concern. This is a concern for everybody in our care, and it is a concern for the church because once you allow someone else to control your doctrine, then you cause the church to not be the pillar and grounds of the truth, the very mission that we have for the church. And so as pastors, this goes back to point three, what are we to do? We talked about the truth. Now we've talked about training the nature of education. Now let's talk about the ministry. What do we do? Simple, preach the word. Preach the word. You preach the truth and you make them aware the Bible has much to say on everything. Everything is the Bible's turf. We have to get our people to love that and to know that and to embrace that. Here's the second thing. You need to inform our people. We need to inform ourselves of what's going on everywhere around us. The news is full of what's going on in educational classrooms. It's horrific. It's appalling. We need to know that. And we need to inform our parents in our congregations of their responsibility. And if you say to me, Abner, does this mandate that we have to do homeschooling? Does it mean that we have to send our kids to private school? Does it mean that we have to send our students to the master's university? Uh, maybe on the first two, yes on the third one. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, no, no. Here's what I'm saying. We do what the Bible says. We recognize that this is an issue of conscience. Can a child potentially be a Daniel in the world? Absolutely. I'm not doubting that one bit. However, as parents, what are we charged to do? And what do we charge parents to do? Be a parent. Raise your child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Be deliberate about that. Be aware of that. Be discerning in that. The parent should be the chief educator of their children, no matter how that looks like. And again, I'm not saying you have to do it one way or another. They must fulfill before the Lord in their own conscience that responsibility, and we must charge them with that. We must repress upon them that, and we must remind them they need to discern. You see, even if they say, I'm committed to doing it a certain way, they need to do their research, whether that be in homeschool or private school. You need to look up the curriculum. You need to look up the school and dig in. 
Lots of schools for marketing purposes will say, we're Christian, we're wonderful, send your kid here, give us your money. Do your research. Make them prove that they are who they say they are. And don't stop until you're really satisfied, until you've gone faculty by faculty to vet really if they're telling you the truth. That's what you have to understand. That's what we need to impress upon our parents. And we need to impress on our students a mentality. Be bold and courageous. And also this, don't just go to school for yourself. That's a very, very secularized religious idea. You just go to school because of you. When do we ever do that? Think about the motto of the Master Seminary. We train men because what? My life depends on it? No. We train lives because what? Because lives depend on it. That's what we remind ourselves. Every student, they're learning not just for them. They're learning for the children they don't have yet and for the spouse they don't have yet and for people in the church they haven't met yet. They are learning for more than them. And they need to have that larger vision, a biblical vision. And we need to not only preach the word, we not only need to inform people, we need to encourage people. We need to encourage parents. Parents have a hard job nowadays. And it's so easy to get discouraged every week. You have seven days to be discouraged in a week as a parent. All the time. And at home school is hard. And, and, and it's difficult to persevere. As pastors, we need to be with parents. And we need to be with stay-at-home moms who have made much sacrifice and, and borne a lot of ridicule from the outside world and a lot of misunderstanding from a lot of people. And we need to say, what you do matters. It's so important, so important, so vital. Keep fighting. Thank you for what you are doing because we recognize God endorses what they do. So we should with all our heart as well. This is found in the chapters of Scripture. Think about the coverage motherhood parenting gets in Proverbs and Ephesians and Colossians and the like. We should be on the front lines with them and saying, keep pressing on, keep holding fast. What you do matters. It eternally is valuable. Do not lose heart. We need to be there Sunday after Sunday after Sunday exhorting them. Don't forget that. We need to be with our students to tell them to be bold and courageous. And we need to be with educators in the public sphere. Public education is a nightmare. It's one of the most difficult mission fields. I've had public educators tell me, Abner, I could get fired for what I just did because I told a girl she shouldn't get an abortion. If the, if the government finds out I did that, I will not only be fired, I could be put in prison. Well, what do you tell somebody like that? Be faithful. Be bold and courageous. And we'll fight this together. Right? We have to be with our people in the public sphere. They're on the front lines of the mission field. We need to be with those in private schools, especially, I don't know if your churches have a school on your campus. If so, you need to be encouraging them because this is the frontline battle. And some of you, because you are motivated to realize truth matters, training matters, and there is a pastoral duty to our children to protect them from the onslaught of the world, we have a fiduciary responsibility before God for those who cannot defend themselves from the onslaught of untruthfulness that is in this world. We will step forward and have schools in our own institutions, in our own churches, to make sure that there is ways for people to be ministered to and resources for them, then we need to also step up. And by the way, you can just be praying along that line because what the master's university and seminary is engaged in in the next several years is to try to unite K through doctorate. That's what we're trying to do in one curriculum. 
a curriculum that we want to give access to for pastors and churches across the world that will help be a resource for parents and be a resource that helps to integrate biblical doctrine through every single discipline. Just pray for us, brothers, because this is a gargantuan project, but it's a necessary one, because our children matter. We have a responsibility to them. We have been called by God to defend them, to support them, to be their parents if we're their parents, and to be their pastors if we are their pastors, and to be those who nurture and shepherd them if we are in the church. And we know there is a silent war right now, a silent war that captures so many casualties as people are sent into places where they are indoctrinated in falsehood. And it is our job to realize this, the Word of God is never bound. The Word of God claims their education. The Word of God claims their training. And so, while there may be many words in this world, we know the Word of God is the last word. And therefore, we must be those who give it. Preach the Word. Fight well. Thank you.